It's also good. Uh, well, good morning again. We won't be playing any games for a little while, um, but we will be having a look at 1 Corinthians chapters 3 and 4. So uh, if you've got a Bible open there, that'd be handy. Um, I think I've got all the verses up on the screen behind us, but we'll find out as we go. Uh, I'm going to pray and uh, we'll ask for God's help as we look at this part of his word together. Father, thank you for the day that you have given us. Uh, we thank you for your word and uh, for the way that you speak to us and change us through it. Uh, we pray, as Ray prayed earlier, that um, we would be teachable, uh, that we would be uh, humble before you, uh, ready to hear your correction, um, as well as your encouragement uh, to keep following Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Uh, well, watching children mature is one of the great joys in life, uh, and sometimes your children truly amaze you with how quickly they can learn something or even just how observant they can be. Um, I remember moments when our girls were, well, much younger than they are now. Oh, look at them. Aren't they cute? I don't know if that's the first day of school. Must have been close to it. Um, but even at this age, um, they could say things that were really insightful uh, or reflective, and there was that flash in those moments of parental pride where, well, at least for a time, they seemed much older and wiser than they really were. Because um, it was only ever a fleeting moment. It never took too long before that illustration, or that illusion, I should say, was, was somewhat shattered um, as they began some irrational negotiation over a vegetable that they refused to eat, which they ate happily the day before, or as they flew into a rage about you know, the piece of cake that they got wasn't quite as large as their sisters, you know, or the tantrums over uh, a particular hat that was missing that needed to be found in order for us to go outside. These are all hypothetical scenarios, of course. Um, a sign of immaturity is how people are willing to fight over unimportant things and get upset over unimportant things. We saw last week as we started looking at Corinthians uh, that there is a division in the church and it's um, around this idea of people uh, forming alliances behind different leaders. Um, some people saying, I follow Paul, some people aligning behind a man named Apollos. And Paul wants to say at the start of chapter 3 here that all of this bickering is actually a product of their immaturity and they haven't grown up as they should. Um, so read with me there from verse 1 of chapter 3. It goes this way. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? The Corinthians had started this new life as Christians, but sadly it seems they haven't grown as they should. Paul says they're still like infants. They're still on milk. They haven't progressed to the solid food. And the giveaway for Paul is their bickering. 
these petty fights, these divisions over which leader they support or which leader they were uh, taught by or, or came to faith in Jesus through. Now, of course, this isn't the only issue uh, that's plaguing the Corinthians, the only area of division within the life of the church. As we read on in the letter and as we'll look at over the next few weeks, uh, there are serious problems in this church. Uh, members within this community are taking each other to court. Um, they've allowed class distinctions within the community. There's a, 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 the rich and the poor are being treated uh, with uh, different levels of respect. Uh, and their Sunday church meetings have become a bit of a free-for-all, among many other things. And so Paul, Paul here, he, he labels them infants, and he urges them to grow up as the children of God. I think it's true that jealousy and bickering are always a bit of a giveaway for immaturity. Um, you only have to watch a bit of sort of trashy reality TV to see this kind of thing. If you tune into something like maths, um, oh, that's married at first sight for the uninitiated. Um, but those of us that are fans, we, we just call it maths. Um, it, it's actually banned in our house. I would watch it, but Catherine won't let me. Um, but if you do watch this show, uh, you can see how grown-ups behave when they haven't really grown up, how they behave around each other, how they treat each other. They appear to be mature, but the jealousy and the insecurity and the bickering tell a different story. Paul is saying that we need to mature spiritually because when we do, we won't act out of places of insecurity. We won't treat other people from a place of pride, you know, feeling that need to drag other people down or promote ourselves and our own agendas. And until we grow up, until we move on from the milk, we're going to struggle to express the unity that we, we do have in Christ and that we're called to express as the people of God. Now, Paul wants to explore these problems in the church in particular with regard to the, the view they have towards their leaders and leadership in general, I think. And Paul talks quite a bit here about his own example and his own experiences as a way to, to challenge them, um, but also to, I think, encourage them to uh, set a different set of priorities for themselves and what they want in their leaders. And to do that, he plays around with a couple of metaphors in here. He starts talking about agriculture and he starts talking about construction. There's talk of fields and buildings. Uh, so read with me there from verse 5 in chapter 3. He says, What after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. Paul says men like he and Apollos, they ought to be viewed as, as workers, as servants. Yes, Paul brought them the gospel. He planted the seed. Apollos came along later and he watered it. He, he pastored them. He discipled them. But of course, it's God who gives the growth. And so each person has a purpose within God's church, within his kingdom. There's work to do. But we're not really the ones making it happen. Only God can make things grow. 
Now, of course, there is a place for respecting and honouring people who serve, uh, people who lead within the life of the church. But the Corinthians seem to have taken that way too far and they've elevated people in a really unhealthy way. And it's something that I think churches are very prone to and something we need to, I think, be constantly uh, on the lookout for. Um, there's a, I guess, a, a cancer might be too strong a word. There's a serious problem within churches around the world, I think, where there's a plague of Christian celebrity, you might like to call it, uh, where the charismatic leaders get elevated uh, and people rally around them and, and pin all their hopes to these particular individuals, gifted as they are. Um, I don't know if any of you have listened to the, the podcast uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, done by Christianity uh, Today, um, a guy named Mike Gosper. Uh, but it's, a, it's a, an analysis of uh, the phenomenon of Mars Hill Church that was started in Seattle by Mark Driscoll. That's his picture there. And it's a fascinating examination of the dangers of Christian celebrity and how success and power can so easily corrupt the mission of the gospel. Too often we are drawn to leaders who have all the charisma, who, who entertain and inspire, but too often that leads to a willingness to ignore some other glaring character faults. The power games going on, sometimes even just the straight up bullying, the belittling of others, the divisions that get created. Because, well, if our church is growing, surely we're anointed, we're, we're under the blessing of God. Well, in contrast to all of that, Paul says there's a way he wants people to view him and themselves and even their own leaders. And he says it simply as servants. There's a couple of times here where he uses this language. He says, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants. This then in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, this then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. We're not to turn people, humans, however gifted they are, into our gurus or celebrities or our saviours. We have one of those already. We're not to put our ultimate confidence and trust in human leaders, however impressive they seem to be, however gifted they are. But instead, we had to look to the one who did in fact save us and who is doing his work of growing his church. So whenever you start to think that perhaps you're really something or perhaps your church is something very special, you're going to start to run into problems. Look at the point Paul makes in chapter 4. Verse 7, he says, For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? There's no place for boasting when everything you have, you've been given. There are no self-made people in the kingdom of God. Everything we have, we have been given. Now, what you do, how you serve, it is important, but it's not really about you. Neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. 
And so Paul gets to the end, towards the end of chapter 3, verse 21, and he gives us his sort of rather exasperated conclusion to all of this. He says, well, I think this is what he's hoping. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. Enough, says Paul. Now, just because God is the one who gives the growth, that's not to say that the work that we do for God doesn't matter or that we can be lazy or apathetic or careless when it comes to the tasks that God has given us. It's a point Paul wants to make in this next section where he shifts the metaphor from agriculture to construction and he starts talking about building. Uh, So go to verse 10 of chapter 3. By the grace, oh here it is, by the grace God has given me, I later, this is Paul speaking again, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Paul says we should take care with how we build. It matters to God, and one day our work will be revealed for what it is. Now, Paul talks about himself here as the one who came first to the Corinthians and laid the foundation of the gospel which is what Jesus himself, he says. In fact, it's the only foundation a church can be built on. That foundation was laid, a church began, and from there, well, everyone's building on that foundation. Everyone who contributes to the work of the kingdom in that place is building on top of that. Now, Paul would say, some of us are building with precious materials, doing some quality work, some quality stonemasonry, Others are stuffing a bit of straw into the gaps and maybe hiding hiding it behind a little bit of filler and maybe putting up a panel of fibro here or there. This language Paul uses reminds me a bit of all the dramas we've had in Sydney lately with the, the dodgy building practices with all of the apartments. I'm sure you'll remember uh, this building, the Opal Tower in Homebush, uh, or even after that, the Mascot Towers, Um, the developers, the builders cut a few corners left out a bit of reinforcing uh, and it all looked beautiful on the outside but in the end those floors become exposed they're seen for what they are Paul says one day the quality of our work in the kingdom will be brought to light that day, that day when Jesus returns and he says then God will reward those that have laboured well, who've done quality work, and others, not so much. It's an encouragement and a warning to take care with how we build. To make sure, firstly, we keep Jesus as the foundation of all that we do. No other foundation to build a church upon, but then to labour faithfully in the work of the kingdom. It's easy, I think, to slip into thinking sometimes for the right sort of reasons. We want to see growth, but sometimes we can stray into thinking that the way that we achieve that is through the latest strategies, 
or perhaps the, the atmosphere that we generate in our meetings or how comprehensive our programs are and, and catering to each and every person. Now these things aren't bad. They may even lead to numerical growth or financial growth. But they ought not to be the measure that we use to value the worth and the work of the kingdom. We need to make sure that we don't become slaves to our own strategies, our own techniques, such that we end up, as Paul says in chapter 1, emptying the cross of its power. Yes, be conscious that God is the one who gives the growth. Remember that the quality of our labour matters too. We call God's servants, his co-workers, his representatives, and so we should live and conduct ourselves in a way that's conscious of that, to be aware that it matters how we live, to live with a, an integrity that's conscious of the fact that we belong to God, live with a willingness to make costly decisions, a willingness to put ourselves out for others, to encourage people, to share the gospel with others, to be people who are generous, to be people who prepared to love sacrificially and people who care about our own godliness. All of that is kingdom work and it's precious in God's eyes. So serve faithfully because one day we'll all stand before God and give an account and our work will be shown for what it is. Now, talking about this uh, day when Jesus is going to come again seems to jog something in Paul's mind because what Paul says next shows that there's a, a way of thinking, uh, well, perhaps an incorrect way of thinking that seems to have crept into the Corinthian church. It's a theological problem. And I'm going to teach you a couple of very big words. Well, not really. Um, theologians would call what the Corinthians have uh, it's an over-realised eschatology. There you go, wheel that one out at your next dinner party. It's a fancy way of saying that the Corinthians think they've already arrived. They think that the, the reality of new creation is a current reality for them. It's the kind of problem I think we see when people spruik what we label as the prosperity gospel. So where leaders harp on about things like anointing and blessing and how victorious God's people are in Christ. And, and all of these things are true. Well, you might say they're a half-truth because what's left out are the things that Jesus told us to expect regarding suffering and rejection and hardship. The Corinthians have fallen into this trap of wanting victory, wanting the power of the resurrection the expression of all these powerful spiritual gifts, but they want to bypass the cross, the way of the cross. They seem to think they're already in the new creation. Look at how Paul describes uh, this problem with a, a healthy slab of sarcasm, I'll add, from verse 8 in chapter 4. He says, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us how I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we might also reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. 
we've been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honoured, we are dishonoured. See the problem? They're acting like they're already reigning with Jesus. And when you assume that the followers of Jesus in his church should only ever be honoured, should be seen as victorious, should even be rich, well, you're not going to cope very well when that isn't your experience. Because you've got the wrong expectations. Unfairly, you've attributed promises from God that, well, he never made. And I think we often see a few things happen when this is the case. I think what usually happens is people end up capitulating and compromising on the gospel. You end up watering the message of the gospel down so that it's no longer a message that offends, or certainly one that offends a lot less, a message you hope that can no longer be mocked by the world. Because, well, there's this craving, this need you have to be loved and respected. You might end up perhaps conforming to the world's way of thinking to try and reduce that friction that has to be there as God's values rub up against the world's values. But one way around that, of course, is to simply adopt the world's wisdom and its idols. And we might see that expressed in our attitudes towards sex and money and pleasure and power and status, morality, well, anything and everything, really. But it's all about taking, I guess, the broad road that Jesus spoke about, the less difficult path. If you've got the wrong expectations about what God should be doing for you in your life, when things do get hard, and they will, you'll almost certainly be disappointed with God. It might even lead to anger and bitterness because this wasn't supposed to be the deal. You were told that if you followed God, you'd be shielded from the hard things. Life should only ever be a series of positive experiences full of blessing. But Paul contrasts that twisted way of thinking, this thinking that's infiltrated the church in Corinth, with his own experience. Paul talks about himself as a fool, as someone who suffers, who is willing to go without, who is willing to work hard, willing to be dishonoured, even willing to be viewed as, as he calls it, the scum of the earth. Paul endures all of that for the sake of the gospel. He suffers for the sake of Jesus. The Corinthians weren't prepared to accept the humiliation that might come their way as followers of Jesus. They thought they were above all that. How much do you think you'd be willing to endure because of your relationship with God? What are you willing to put up with for the sake of the gospel? Well, what does Paul want the Corinthians to do? How should they respond to all of this? Well, he tells them in verse 14 of chapter 4, he says, I'm writing this not to shame you, 
<clears throat> although I think there's a bit of shame involved, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Paul says, I don't want to shame you. I'm not writing this to humiliate you. I want you to listen. I want you to grow. I want you to respond as you should. And in particular, I want you to imitate me, says Paul. Paul wants them to adopt his attitudes, his humility, to reshape the way they look at their leaders, what they value, what they encourage. Paul says that he expects to pay them a visit soon, and if they haven't responded as they should, it's going to be a difficult reunion. So in verse 21 he says this, What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? Paul's hope in sending this letter to them is that they will heed the warnings, that they'll respond humbly, they will start imitating Paul, the things they saw in Paul when he was with them for those 18 months. But I don't think the Corinthians are the only ones who can do with a little more Paul imitation. I think we all need to be reminded of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be challenged that God's call upon our lives requires us to be humble, requires us to see ourselves as servants, to remember that we've got nothing to boast about. There's nothing that we have that we haven't been given by God. To remember that there's no such thing as a self-made person in his kingdom. To remember that until Jesus comes back, we can expect hardship. We shouldn't expect this world to fawn over us and love us and approve of us. We shouldn't expect, well, we shouldn't try to import the world's values into the church. God calls us into his service. Some of us might be planters. Some of us might be waterers. We're all building in some capacity. But God gives the growth. Let's take great care with how we build. It's his church, not ours. And remember that we only ever build on the foundation of Jesus. But let me finish by asking, how's your serving going? Do you view yourself as Paul did, as a, a servant of God and a servant of others? Are you willing to humble yourself in that way? Because that's what God calls us all to be. Let me encourage you to take some time this week to think about how you can serve God more effectively with your life. How you can serve others. How you can do that better. How you might plant and water and build. And don't just think about it. Maybe go and do something about it as well. Uh, we're going to respond in prayer and Ray's going to lead us in that.